We're going to get right into it today. Nehemiah chapter 5. What do you guys think of the series in Nehemiah so far? Interesting. Hopefully you've been getting a lot out of it and even following up and looking at notes you take or the, the verses we read. I think God still has a lot left in this book to speak to us too. Uh, but the title of the message today is Walking in the Fear of God. Walking in the Fear of God. Now fear is something that we experience as humans. I want you to take a moment and think about the things that you've been fearful of in your life. I was kind of taking and, and preparing the study today. I was thinking about, okay, what, what are things in the past that I've been afraid of? And some different funny ones kind of came on. You know, I remember when I was younger, I always told my parents, mom, leave the, leave the hall light on, right? I didn't want it to be pitch dark. Uh, maybe some of you had a night light when you were younger. Um, or maybe for you in your room, you need the shade closed. Like, no way am I sleeping with the shade open. Like, close the curtains. I don't want anything trying to look at me, right? Some of you still are like that. Um, or uh, what about swimming? Swimming pools at night without the light on, right? You think, like, there's, like, sharks in the pool or something. Come on. You know, and, and right, there's rational, and then there's irrational fears. There's some things, it's like, yeah, you should probably be afraid of that. But then there's other things. It's like, okay, that's just an irrational fear. And uh, when I started thinking about irrational fears, um, I started thinking about my dad. And my dad, uh, if you know him, he's, he's around the church. He, Mr. Pickett in uh, children's ministry. Um, man, he's a, he's a funny guy. He's very uh, just boisterous. And it's just, it's just him. It's his personality. I remember when we were younger, you know, we would tell him, hey, dad, I, I swallowed an ice cube. Like, What's going to happen? He's like, oh no, your, your insides are going to freeze over, right? And maybe you have dads like that where they say, okay, you, you uh, swallow um, a sunflower seed. And so then you're like, dad, I swallowed a sunflower seed. What's going to happen? Well, sunflower seed tree is going to start growing in you. I remember my dad was very sarcastic and you'd be like, oh no, is that, is that real? Um, I was talking to, to Haley and she was saying that she's heard people you know, with your young kids. I can't wait to have kids because I'm just going to troll them like that. It's going to be so fun. And, you know, that when they would see a pregnant lady, they'd be like, the, the parent would tell the, the son or daughter like, oh yeah, see, see that lady? It's because she swallowed a watermelon seed once, right? And, <laughs> and the watermelon grew inside of her, right? But it's kind of funny. But there are such things called as healthy fears, right? There's, there's these rational and irrational fears, but there's some things that it's good that we fear those things. Uh, it's good to have a healthy fear of heights. It is. It's not that you should be afraid of them necessarily. Maybe some of you are, but it, sh it should be good when you're around the Grand Canyon, you're on the edge. There's some healthy fear there, or you'll just fall and die. Uh, it's good to have healthy fear of the freeway. Not, I'm not afraid of the freeway, but I'm not going to go play spike ball on the freeway because I'm afraid of dying, right? Um, and it's like it, these fears that are good. There should be a healthy fear of knives and guns, right? There should be a healthy fear of like maybe mom has you cutting some, some tomatoes or something at home. Like it's not that you should be afraid of the knife, but you shouldn't be like, let's just play around with knife, right? Uh, you should have, there should be some respect towards the knife, right? Uh, there should be a healthy fear of police officers, and you know that feeling, we'll talk about it in a moment, of like, uh, you know, when your parents are driving and, and they're not even speeding, they're not doing anything wrong, but the police officer drives and like, okay, yeah, we're good. Police, police officer, okay, we're doing good. Right? And there's that almost fear. It's not that they're afraid that the police officer is going to hurt them, but there's a fear of like, it's good. There should be that healthy fear. It's good to have a healthy fear of parents. It's good, especially of dad. 
Uh, sometimes more of mom, though, to be honest, uh, because it's going to keep you back from doing stupid stuff, from doing stuff you shouldn't. And we, you and I, are to have a healthy fear of God. Not that we are afraid of him, but that we fear him, that we have a reverence for him and an awe of him, that our lives are to be aware that God is always watching and that he is always aware. And for the person who doesn't walk in the fear of God, sin will abound. But for the person who has a daily awareness of the presence and power of God, that he is there, uh, holiness will be a mark of that person's life. And as we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, we, we come off the tail end of Nehemiah chapter 4. And if, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, last week we had the Q&A, but the week before that, we talked about how we were to be battle ready. We talked about how the enemy came, but they failed, that they became battle ready and, uh, and, and they were prepared for any threat that might come on the outside. But what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 5 is not the enemy, not a threat from the outside, but we're going to see a threat from the inside begin to rise up from their own people. And if left alone, uh, this, this issue and problem would be a great divide of the people. And, and though they prepared for these outside threats, they were not prepared for the, what was going to happen inside. And so Nehemiah 4 ends on a great note of victory but Nehemiah chapter 5 opens with a great problem. And so let's read it together. Uh, we're going to read the text. All, there's 19 verses in chapter 5. I'm going to read all of them. And so I want you to encourage you, as I'm reading this, uh, it's going to be very beneficial for you for the rest of the study if you really pay attention during this part. Follow along in your Bibles. Listen to the words that, I, that come out of my mouth because they are God's words. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1, and then we'll pray. It says this, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money from the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of the daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Verse 6, Nehemiah speaking, he says, And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. It means that they were charging high interest rates. Verse eight, and I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silent and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Verse 12. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. 
We will do as you say. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may, be he, may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the, promise did, then the people did according to the promise. Verse 14, moreover, from that time that I appointed, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine and besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. Listen, listen closely, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. That, now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and one every 10 days in abundance of all kinds of wine. It's a lot of food. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Father, we come to you this morning and Lord, if we don't come to you in, in reverence and fear, Lord, would you put that in us now? Lord, as we come to your word, may it be something of seriousness and something of, of joy, though, something of excitement, but something uh, that we would take, in, uh, take consideration to. And so go before us as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 opens with this problem, and hopefully you were able to catch a little bit of that problem. And so the first kind of point today is uh, that we see this problem of the people, and we see this uh, within a handful of verses. We see that, verse 1, that there's an outcry among the people. It means that they start to talk to Nehemiah and complain to him and say, hey, that we have a problem. Houston, we got a problem, okay? And they say, and, but what is the problem? Well, they begin to say, and if you look at verses 1 through 5, they talk about how they didn't have enough food. They talk about how they didn't have enough money for their land, that they were in debt to the king. And because of this lack of money, that their sons and their daughters were, they, they started having to enslave them because they didn't have enough money to live. And so there's a big problem that the people, remember, remember in the context of the people that are working on the wall, that after they're done that day working on the wall, they go home and there's no food, that there's issues. And it seems that the work of God begins to cease because of this outcry. Nowhere in chapter 5 do you see any work of the wall mentioned. And this is interesting because of this problem, the work ceases. What was the reason? What was, why was this going on? Why did the people not have enough money? Why did they not have enough money to feed them and their children to provide for their household? You see, one thing is mentioned here about the famine. It says that there was a famine in the land, meaning that crops were a little bit lower than normal that there wasn't as much food to go around. It speaks about taxes, but that was normal. These things were not the issue because lands went in and out of famines at time. Taxes are a normal a thing. But you see, there was something else that was here. 
The Bible says that the nobles and rulers were exacting usury from their brothers. You're like, what is usury? Well, usury is charging unfairly high interest rates, okay? Uh, modern day things that, especially for your parents, they, they go to the bank and they take out loans for a house or for a vehicle, for school or for a credit card, and, and they, they begin to charge them extra of what they took out. Let me illustrate this for you guys so that you can understand, okay? Uh, who likes uh, the ice cream truck? I still like the ice cream truck. Don't be... Wait, wait, let me see your hands. Who likes when the ice cream truck comes around? That's like one of the greatest sounds in human history, right? Uh, that we come and, oh man, the ice cream truck. Remember as a kid, you can go to the next slide. Um, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, there you go. Ice cream truck. Um, okay, imagine this. Imagine you and your friends are at the park, okay? You're hanging out, playing basketball, whatever, just goofing off, and you hear the sound of the truck. The truck comes and, and parks and is like, I, don't, I can't do the sound, but the sound is going, right? And you're like, wait, my, there's no, I don't have my wallet. I forgot my wallet at home. I forgot my money. And by the time I run home and come back, the ice cream truck's going to be gone. And your friend's like, well, I got a few dollars. And so you ask your friend, well, can I have a dollar? And he's like, well, if you pay me two tomorrow, okay? Interest, interest. boom, that's, that's usury. And that's actually 100% interest. That is like terrible and so imagine they say, well, and then, and then if you don't pay me the next day, and so it's two days that pass by that I loaned you that dollar, you're going to owe me three. Imagine. Say that, that is interest, but then usury is when it's unfair. Maybe it would have been more, I mean, it would have been better for your friend just to be like, yeah, here's, here's a dollar. Just pay me back when you can't. Uh, but even if it was like, okay, you owe me a dollar and a quarter, right? Um, but these are, this is a very low scale. But these people, they were just trying to live. They were trying to feed their families. And, and because of the famine, they would you know, normally do and, and go to people, these nobles and rulers who had more money, and they were charging them astronomical, obscene, absolutely too high, unfair of these interest rates. And so they didn't have enough money to feed their family. And, and so this outcry happens. And uh, we see that these high-class citizens, they were oppressing those who didn't have enough. And think about, think about the people who just moved from Persia, and now they're with Nehemiah, they're trying to get established, trying to build the wall, trying to just survive, be faithful to what God had called them to do. See, it wasn't that the, these people were like wanting all this extravagant thing. So they're like, well, if I don't get that premium donkey, you know, then I'm, I'm going to start crying out. No, it was that they didn't have enough money for food, that these rulers and nobles were making a profit off of the people's need. Does that make sense? You guys clear on that? They were just taking advantage. But the problem, it was one thing for them to charge high interest, and that's understandable and even, you know, can, okay, like, you know, can, can go back and forth. But it's another thing for the Jews to be doing this to fellow Jews. Why? Because God had specifically and clearly told them not to. And let's see this. Look at Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 through 27. God had told them not to multiple times, which every Jew would have known. This would have been common knowledge for them. The Bible says, and I love it because we get to see God's heart here. He says, if you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, Notice the poor. You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. 
what will he sleep in? Kind of funny. But it says this, and it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. You see, God is not putting this label that all interest is sin, but he is saying this, that God is calling his, his people to live a different standard than that of the world, and that is to be gracious. That God specifically at the time of the Jews too, and same with you and I, he wanted them to be gracious people. But the rulers and nobles, they were not exemplifying grace. Leviticus chapter 25, another place where God tells them this, says this, therefore you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. And if one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or sojourner that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. You see, this was God's whole design, that as God had moved them from the land of Egypt way back when he gave the law, he says, look, he says, I rescued you out of the slavery of people who put heavy bondage and chains on you. Don't do that to one another. Just because someone is in a hard financial spot, don't make it so difficult for them that they can never get their head above water. And I love it. Pastor Jack, it's something that he mentions quite often, actually. Um, and I think it's something just in his heart that he talks about. But he, he, he'll, he'll tell us from the main sanctuary or even just in different meetings, he'll say, imagine if God sent us a bill at the end of the day. He said, okay, this is how much, how much it was you used my water you used my air. Oh yeah, you saw my sunset. That's going to be a charge too. Imagine, but God doesn't do that because God his, he's, has a gracious heart. This is God's heart to be gracious and not greedy. And we are told by Jesus to be this way in the New Testament. Luke chapter six, verse 30. You guys good? You following? Yes, I'm excited about this. This is good. This is good things that you and I need to keep on our hearts and view God as. Luke chapter six says this, to give to everyone who asks of you, but love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. You see, this whole message is not about like, you know, don't charge interest to your friends for ice cream. Hey, that's not, that is not the goal of this message, but the, the goal right here to see this problem is that the people were not acting in line with the heart of God, that they were acting greedy and they were not acting gracious. And this problem, as I said before, seems to stop all of the work. And nowhere do we see chapter five talk about the work of the wall. But you see, it wasn't a money problem in the sense that there wasn't enough. It's that some were taking advantage of others. There was actually enough money for the wall too, that all the supplies and resources were there. And you, you see, usually money is never the problem. It always goes back to our selfishness and sin. Money is rarely actually the problem. And, and how we handle money, though, directly affects our usefulness and effectiveness for the kingdom. That these, though they seem like uh, physical issues, they are spiritual issues that have kingdom impact. And so here's the problem. Do you guys see the problem pretty clearly? Those that are higher taking advantage of those that were lower, okay? Now, what is the solution? Well, next we'll see the solution to the situation, okay? The solution 
to the situation. We see, and, and if you followed along in our reading, you see in verse 6 that Nehemiah finds out about this, right? The people come and tell him what's going on, and it says that he is outraged. The Bible says that he's very angry, and it says that he goes to the, the rulers and the nobles and he rebukes them. Very strong language. It says that he calls a great assembly together. Like he hears of it and he's like, nah, this ain't, this ain't happening, okay? And he gets very serious and he calls together and he says, nobles, really, I don't, all of y'all, let's get together and we're gonna talk through this. And if you see verses eight through 12, we'll, you, you can see what he begins to speak to them. He gathers them together and in verse eight, we'll read it again. He says, he says, look, he says, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. They were finally all back together. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. That he begins to speak to them and in the whole gathering, you could hear a pin drop. This is they're like, oh man, Nehemiah ain't happy. He says to them, then in verse nine, and this is key, he says, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? You see, he tells them straight up that what they're doing is not good. And, and then he brings them the solution to the situation. What would have preserved, uh, sorry, pr prevented this in the first place. And that's verse nine. And this is key. And you can go to the, the next slide. Verse nine should be up there. Should you not walk in the fear of of our God. This, when you trace it all back, this was the issue. Why were they taking advantage? Well, they were selfish and sinful. Yes, true. But when you boil it all down, this was the issue that they were not walking in the fear of their God. You see, what they were doing to the people, how they were taking advantage of them and going against God's word was the result of not walking in the fear of God. The real problem was this. And I want you to know, and if you have your Bibles, underline this. This is big. It's huge. And this is where it gets extremely personal for you and I. Are you guys ready? You might say, like, okay, how does this whole thing uh, apply to me? This is how it applies. This is where it gets personal. That the people had sinned against their fellow Jews because they were not walking in the fear of God. They didn't have what we first talked about, that healthy fear. They didn't have it. It wasn't there. You see... Holiness, you guys know what holiness means? Right, it's an it's a, it's a attribute of God, but it's something that you and I are called to. Holiness, is, think about it as purity. It's, it's lack of sin, no sin. And holiness in the Bible is almost always connected with fearing God. What I found and what I see in, in my view of scriptures is that they're almost inseparable. That the pursuit of holiness in our lives, meaning that, that sin would start tearing its way off of our lives, that sin would start to diminish, always starts with an understanding of the awesome reality of who God is. I want to show you a scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 17. It's very clear here. It says this, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. A lot of holies there. Then this, he says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. How does holiness come about in someone's life? How does, someone, how does sin start to fall off in someone's life? It's 
conducting yourself in the fear of God. You see, when we lose our, our perspective of God and we lose that perspective of who he is and how great and awesome and powerful and really majestic God is, then we start to lose that godly reverence for him. And holiness diminishes and sin begins to abound. Is there a lot of sin in your life right now? It's because you have a wrong perspective of God. If you knew, if you recognize, if you begin to meditate on who God really is, not our homie up in the sky, not the big man upstairs, but he is God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, your life would look different. I believe that with all of my heart. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1 says this, therefore, having these promises, all of what God has promised, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It is the only way holiness can happen in our lives is if we have a correct view of the fear of God. You see, these people, these rulers and nobles, they were in blatant and direct violation of God's word, yet they were Jews. They would be categorized in the world as people who followed after Yahweh, God, yet they seemed to almost have no problem with it, that they were doing something in direct violation of God, but there was almost, seemed to have no problem. Why? It's because they didn't have this right perspective. They were not walking in the fear of God. But what does this look like for you and I as we get personal with it? What does this practically look like? What does it look like for you and I to walk in the fear of God in our everyday lives? As we go into Monday tomorrow, you know all of us are going to go into Monday tomorrow, unless the Lord takes you home. We're all going to go into Monday, and then we're going to go into Tuesday. What is going to, how do we walk in the fear of God? What does this look like? Well, I love Philippians 2.12. This is one I want you to know and memorize and have in your heart, and it's, and it's this. And some people get this one confused, but Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice that it says work out, not work for. The Bible doesn't say, okay, here we're to work for our own salvation. No, it says work out. It means as you are saved and as you are going, as you live, do it with fear and trembling. And this will look different for each, each person. We are to do everything in our life in this way. We are to be aware that God is here, that God is watching, and that God will ultimately see in the end See, this includes, and hopefully I can bring some practical application to you, this includes when you're home alone. When you're home alone and your parents aren't watching, your older siblings aren't watching, no one sees, it's, it's knowing that God is watching. It's when you're in your room up alone and you think your parents are busy down, downstairs. It's, it's who you are in that time of recognizing God is here in the room with me. It's when, you, when you're with your friends and you're goofing off. And realizing God is here, that God is in the midst of us. He's watching and he knows and he's aware. It's in those temptations, even when that desire almost feels overwhelming that you just want to do it. You just want to sin in this way or that way. It's stepping back and being, okay, God's here. God's watching every movement. God's watching everything I do. He's, he knows even my thoughts. And we, you and I, we need to realize that everything we do matters. Sometimes we can handle the way we handle sin. It's like, well, it's not that big a deal. No, it is. To God, it is. What, 
what picture and view do you have of God? You see, as believers, you and I will appear before God one day. We will have to talk about our entire lives with him, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Thank God, due to the sacrifice of Jesus, you and I, we won't be punished for those sins. But it doesn't mean that those sins are not addressed. The Bible talks about it pretty clearly that there is a judgment seat for you and I. It's one for rewards, but it is one where those things will be discussed. The Bible describes that our lives will, in a sense, go through a fire and that we'll have to remember and think about some of those things that we did, that God will bring them to our attention. Now, we won't be punished for anything as believers, but sometimes we forget that. We think that we can just get off scot-free. It's not true. Thank God for his, his sacrifice, but may we never take advantage of that. You see, we not only need to have a good understanding of God's love and his kindness and his goodness and those sweet things, but also we need to have a really good understanding of his holiness, of his majesty, of his justice. That as joyful as God is, and I believe he is because the Bible says that even when you and I, when we get to heaven, that he's gonna be singing over us and dancing, that God is gonna do that over us. And so as much of a joyful God that I think he is, I think where you and I often so lack is realizing how holy he is, how pure he is, how really serious he is about sin. You see, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire and that we would serve him with reverence and godly fear. You th- see, I think it is crucial for us to fix our thinking in this area. That he isn't, right, just as I said before, the man upstairs. He's not, he's not our homie. That he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and, there, and the last. And there is no one like him and there's no one to compare him to. Everyone look at me. Do you have sin in your life that you just can't shake? That you know, you know it's in blatant violation of God's word and what he's asked you to do, but it's like you just can't shake it. That there's this sin that has a hold on you and you just can't, you can't seem to stop doing it as much as you maybe even confess and repent, but you're just going right back weekly to it. I want you to start meditating on the grandeur of who God is, on his attributes. And as you start putting God in the right light in your life and you seek him and know him for real, I just think it's a fact. As you start to pursue God, right, he says that he's a consuming fire. And so as you get closer to him, those things of the world just begin to burn off. And holiness starts to be more of the fruit of your life rather than sin. And so I want to encourage you, if, if that's you today and, and there's some sin that you just can't shake, uh, as you get closer to the Lord, he, he just does it. He does it naturally. It's awesome. The, 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 the goal isn't to shake the sin. The, the goal is to get closer with Jesus and it will just burn off. It's awesome. And so we saw the problem. We saw the solution, which is pretty clear to the present problem. Uh, but now I want to take a few moments and take, take some lessons from the leader. 
Uh, Nehemiah is, the, of course, the main star. Uh, well, the Lord is, but Nehemiah is the, the main figure and character throughout this whole story. And I think almost in every chapter, there's certain things that we can take from him and certain things that we can learn from him. And do you guys know what it means to like compare and contrast something? Um, and this can be very helpful when trying to understand something. Your, your teachers do it when they, when they tell you a word, but then they'll tell you right, a synonym to it and also an antonym. And they'll tell you those both things and you can compare and contrast in order to understand that word better. And we see here in our text, there's a good contrast and comparison between what it looks when someone doesn't walk in the fear of God and what it looks like when someone does. And we see this with the, the nobles and rulers compared to Nehemiah. And there are a few lessons I believe we can look at here regarding Nehemiah as a God-fearing leader. Now, the first kind of key verse I gave you was verse nine. Remember, it talked about how Nehemiah is talking to people and he says, should you not walk in the fear of God? That that was the solution? That if they just would begin to fear God, that the sin would go away? Well, now we see here another key verse and it's verse 15. I want you to look at it. Verse 15 uh, says this. Verse 15, it says, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. See, Nehemiah is talking about here how the people, different governors of Jerusalem before him, they would take advantage of the people, just like the nobles and rulers. This was normal. They, they would tax them very hard so uh, just for the benefit and profit of the governor. But Nehemiah was different in this way. And this is big. It's not that Nehemiah didn't want those things. It's not that even Nehemiah maybe even didn't want to take advantage of the people, but he did not do so because of the fear of God. And this verse is huge, guys. I want you to know this one and remember this one as well. What's going to stop you from going headfirst into a sin? This is. It's in that moment of, I'm not going to do so, not because I don't even want to, but because God is here and God is watching. You see, Unlike the rulers and nobles, Nehemiah did not use his position for self-gain, but rather he used it for the benefit of God and others. He was a leader who was clearly for the people and not for himself. And we can understand this, this whole fear of God idea, I think, really well by, by police officers. I mentioned it earlier, um, but this one really just, uh, it makes sense for me. You see, police officers exist because we need that. We need that in our society. Even adults, right, they, they need this accountability. We need to be held accountable in this way. And it's what I want to call the fear effect, okay? It's the fear effect. It's, and it's the same with you and your parents, okay? So I'll illustrate, like, when that police officer rolls up and someone's doing 60 and they see the police officer, what are they going to do? They're going to slow down. And so in that moment, if you can, uh, the moment of temptation and doing something that you know is wrong, if you can just think God is watching, I believe it'll get you to slow down. And same with your parents. You know this, this fear effect with your parents. When you're doing something, maybe at home, when, they're not home, when you're home alone and you're doing something, whether it's like big or small, you're just watching some TV show, they, they told you not to, which is a big deal. You're disobeying them. I'm not just talking about like you're like taking some swig of alcohol or smoking drugs or something like that. But even the thing about some of the, the, what we would classify as smaller. 
right? And, and you hear that garage door open. What do you do if you're watching that show? Or right, turn it off, go, I'm reading my Bible, mom, dad, <laughs> hello, mother, father, right? And you're going to act very natural. It's the fear effect. And this is good. We need this because you and I are so sinful, because our hearts are so evil, we need this in our lives. And Nehemiah, as a leader, if you look at verse 14, he didn't take what was rightfully his. Verse 15, he didn't make people serve him. Verse 16, he worked on the wall with the people. Verse 17 and 18, he provided what, uh, for others of what he had. You see, I'll, I'll summarize it in this way. Nehemiah did not take when he could have, and he gave when he didn't have to. Why? I don't believe it's because Nehemiah was the most loving and gracious person of all time. I believe that we could see it. We see that in verse 15. It's because he feared God. And over time, no doubt he becomes more loving and gracious, but it is because he feared God. There are just two more lessons that I want to point out to you guys from Nehemiah of, of how he handled that problem and situation. And one of them is Nehemiah's anger. Okay, we're, we're almost done. Nehemiah's anger, right? Because that was mentioned, how he became very angry. Uh, the Bible says that this very angry means to burn with a great rage, that he was mad. Everyone say mad. I mean, he was, he was fuming. And the, the problem with this is that you and I often look at anger as a sin. But everyone look at me. Anger is not a sin. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and uh, quotes Psalm 4, 4, and it says this, the Bible says that we are to be angry and do not sin. Psalm 4, 4, be angry and do not sin. You're like, wait, I've always thought anger is a sin. No, because anger in line with God's anger is a good thing. You see, uh, David Guzik puts it like this regarding Nehemiah. It says that Nehemiah was passionate enough to get angry, but wise enough not to act until he had considered the matter carefully. This is good, because if you notice, in verse 6, it says that he becomes, becomes angry. In verse 7, it says, after serious thought, he does something. He does not have this hot temper where he just goes in a rage. You see, I believe anger is not a sin, but what you do with the anger can become a sin. Hey, temper. If, you, if you're someone like, oh, sweet, I can have my temper back, and I'll just react to people when, when they do something I don't like. No, that is sin. See, the Bible says that God is angry at times. He's actually angry every day. You know that? Psalm chapter seven, verse 10, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. When you are angry with evil, that is called, that's a good thing. But the Bible also says that God is slow to anger. And so if you're someone who is quick tempered, uh, you gotta cool your jets because that's not, in line with the heart of God. You see, this is important that our anger shouldn't be out of control, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. There are things in life that make me angry. There are. When I see injustice, right? When I hear about the amount of uh, killing of babies that goes on in our country, in our state. When I hear about people just trampling over, um, you know, the, what, what God has defined as marriage. There are things that anger me. Now, does that mean I go out and I start shooting people and yelling at people? No. 
It's that what you do with after the anger, that it has to be in line with what God is like in control of his Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And some of you, uh, maybe you feel, you find yourself angry a lot, okay? It's what you do with it. God, I believe, wants to, wants to uh, take some of that anger within you, and he wants to filter it, and he wants to put it towards his goals, his passions, his heart. Hey, the last thing is Nehemiah's confrontation. Uh, notice that he got pretty confrontational. Uh, he's fearing God, and as this God-fearing leader, he gets angry, and he actually confronts. And you and I can often see confrontation as a bad thing. But we see that Nehemiah, he didn't let this one slide. Right? He didn't just step back and say, well, someone else can deal with it. That Nehemiah wasn't a coward here, but he approached the problem head-on by going directly to the people uh, that were uh, directly with the people that, was the, that had the issue. He wasn't whispering or gossiping behind their back. And when we first read this, it seems like Nehemiah hits them pretty hard. It says that he rebukes them. He says, man, what you're doing is not wrong. But sometimes this is needed. That sometimes God's people, this, they just need a, a, a very straightforward um, rebuke in that way. But honestly, though, look how they respond. The people, they do respond well. That at first they're silent, and then they say, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll restore, we'll give back what we, what we basically stole from these people. That they responded well. Why do I bring this up? Because you and I can often shy away from confrontation. But I believe that there are moments in your life, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that God is going to want you to step up and speak and say something when there's a situation that you see is wrong. Nehemiah saw this situation was wrong, and he dealt with it accordingly. He wasn't mean. He wasn't um, mean-spirited in that way. But he, he, he was, he, he confronted in that way. Jude chapter, uh, Jude, there is no chapter, uh, verse 22 and 23 says this, that you and I are on some to have compassion, making a distinction, but others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. You see, it's not that you and I are to be sin sniffers, but we are to step in when someone is suffering due to sin. And there's gonna be moments in your life, and I believe there even now, whether it's at home or at school or with your friends, and you see someone suffering due to someone else's sin, you step in. You be bold. You be confrontational. Now, you are to do that all under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You're to be led in that way. You are to make sure that, that you have control of that and it's not out of control. And so, as we conclude, I want to bring up Jesus to you. See, Jesus is that example of ours of what it looks like to fear God. Because when he was here on earth, he, he feared the Father. He obeyed him and followed him and listened to him. And with his position, he was for the people. He wasn't for himself. He exampled us to us what it looks like to walk in the fear of God. And interestingly enough, hundreds of years later, Jesus would become angry. And he would go into God's temple, his place of worship, and begin to confront in a very similar way uh, and actually what, what appears more harsh than even Nehemiah did. What were the people in the New Testament doing? They were selling things with usury. They were selling things that unfair, they were selling things of worship. 
right? They would worship with this sacrificial system where they would buy birds and animals and they they would sacrifice them to God. And these money changers, and and the the Bible says that Jesus put together a, a whip of cords and went in there and started flipping tables and began to be whipping people. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, he did that. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I are to go into places and flip tables and make whips, okay? Uh, You are not, until you can walk on water and and be perfect and sinless, then you can do that, okay? But for you and I, there is to be a control. And you see, uh, worship team, you guys can come out. Guys, God is holy. God has called us to be holy. His directions are clear and his word, and we are to walk in the fear of God. And with an understanding of who God is, realizing that God is here right now in this room and God knows your thoughts. He knows the good ones and he knows the bad ones. He knows a thought. Your thoughts are far off. And when you start to comprehend that we will meet him one day face to face and nothing will be pushed under the rug, right? What what Jesus' sacrifice does, it doesn't push things under the rug. It deals with the punishment part. But you will be accountable, what the Bible says, for everything you do in your body, whether good or bad. And so I want to encourage you, if you're a believer, uh, though you will see God face to face, uh, you will not be punished for what you did wrong. It's awesome. We should praise Jesus and worship him for that truth. And if you're an unbeliever here, or you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, uh, the Bible says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boys, sit down. We're not done yet, okay? Thank you. You see, may our pursuit be him. Uh, may we become like him more every day. May our lives please him. And my prayer for you guys today is that God would put his reality in you. And not just here at church, you would, in a sense, sense God's presence. But you would... M- Meditate on that fact that as you go to school tomorrow, as you talk with your friends tomorrow, as you go home tomorrow, as you go home today, as you're in your room alone tonight, God is there and God is watching. He loves you. He wants the most for you. Uh, But he is not a God who turns the other eye. He doesn't look away. He's aware of everything that you're doing. And so if there's something that you shouldn't be doing, you give it to him today. And the amazing thing is that he's so good that he's not just a God to be feared, but he's a God that we can come to. And when he says like, and and you know, we we feel that prompting of the spirit and we feel that conviction. We're like, man, I'm messing up in this area. God says, okay, yeah, I, I wanted you to fear me. And I wanted you to know that I saw that so that you can come to me with that and I can take it from you so that I can forgive you as you confess it as sin and you acknowledge that so we can move on and keep going. And so if that's you today, this morning, uh, you do that in this time of worship, okay? God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the truths that are in it. And and Lord, may we fear you. May we walk in in lives, uh, in our lives, Lord, in a way that would honor you. And Lord, when we forget that you're present, would you remind us somehow, some way, should be that prompting of your spirit or the encouragement of a friend or the admonishment of a, of a parent. God, we want to please you. When we get there on the other side of eternity and we see you, Lord, we, we want you to say to us, Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. So we know we're not going to be perfect, Lord, but 
we don't want to miss what you have for us in life because of our sin, because of our unwillingness to surrender. And so we, we look to you this morning and ask that you go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.